It doesn't like me. There's a guy named Gavin De Becker. He's a security consultant, and so he gets called into companies when they get into safety issues that they want a little bit of counseling and advice about. On one occasion, he was called in to work with a company, and he had to deal with a manager uh, who he said was one of these rules guys. And what the, what the rules guys believe is all you need to do is just set a rule about something, and then there's nothing you have to do to enforce or to do anything further to prepare for anything beyond that. And no matter how many times they went back and forth about the limitations of rules, uh, the guy never quite got the point. Until one time he called De Becker, panicked because a former employee was threatening different sorts of violence against him, and he was wondering what he should do. And so De Becker said, tongue-in-cheek, he said, since rules are so powerful, let's make a new rule that says employees cannot shoot administrators. And how many of you think that if you just make a rule like that, you never have to worry about anything ever again? I think all of us realize that rules have a limit in their ability to regulate behavior. In much the same way, Paul has been in his letter to the Romans, he has been introducing them to the limits of the law in several different facets. In Romans chapter 1 through chapter 4, Paul has essentially been answering the question, can the law bring us into a saved relationship with God? And of course, his answer in Romans 3.20 is, for no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law. So there's a limit in what the law of Moses can do in bringing a person into relationship with God. Romans chapter 5 through Romans chapter 8 is going to ask the question, but what, what then can law do in producing holy living? Do we then turn to law to help us to live the kind of a life that God wants us to live? And so it's Romans 7 where Paul is going to focus specifically on the question about what does the law do and what is its role in producing holy living? So Romans 7 begins with an illustration. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, so we assume here Paul's speaking to his Jewish audience, that the law is binding on a person only during that person's lifetime. Thus a married woman is bound to the law, bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning her husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So the illustration is pretty straightforward as long as we realize we have to switch gears midway through in terms of who we identify with. We begin by identifying with the husband. Uh, we notice the connection is made here. In the same way, friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. So remember back in Romans 6, 8, Paul says we have died to Christ. So in the beginning, we are like the husband. And it's, not, and it's not somebody else who has died, but it's we ourselves in the waters of baptism who have died. And at the point that death happens, we then switch the role that we, pray, we play. We then become like the woman, so that you may belong to another, to him who raised from the dead, in order that we may bear the fruit of God. So Christians are no longer bound to the law of Moses. Instead, we are free to remarry. 
And we become like this woman. The conclusion of the matter in Romans 7, 6, Paul says, But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. So in many ways, Romans chapter 7 is like a walk down memory lane where Paul will remind his Jewish leaders of what life was like in the previous marriage to law. Romans 8, Paul will then look ahead to the advantages that will come with life with the new husband. That new husband, of course, is the Holy Spirit. But if we were to ask Paul to describe that first husband, that first marriage, what would Paul say of it? Since life is so much better with this new husband, we might expect Paul to say some awful and terrible things about that first husband. Oh, that first husband, the law, what a controlling jerk. But in fact, we find that Paul does not say negative things about the husband himself. Notice in Romans 7, verses 7 through 13, Paul will make two points about the law of Moses. And the first is, the law is good. And the second is that the law is powerless. So Paul doesn't trash law in the way that we would expect him to do, but he simply wants us to realize law is limited in what it can do. Paul doesn't put law down, which is kind of surprising, because ever since Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul has had these triangle of negative things that he's talked about in relationship. He's talked about death, and about sin, and about law. And he's talked about them so much that Paul is imagining that some of his readers might be getting the idea that he's saying negative things about law as its natural self. And so Paul wants to clear up any misunderstanding about the actual nature of law. And so he asks the question he anticipates some would be asking, which is, is the law sin? And Paul outright rejects that. The law of Moses is not sin by no means. So then, Paul, how would you describe the law? How would you describe that first husband? And these are the words he uses to describe that husband. The commandment is holy and just and good. Well, how come that marriage was so awful and so terrible if the law was holy and just and good? And how, if the law is holy and just and good, did it get wrapped up with sin? And how did it get wrapped up with death? And that answer will come in Romans chapter 7 in the first part of verse 8. But sin... Seizing an opportunity in the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. In fact, sin has a parasitic nature. A parasite is something that latches on to something unhealthy and brings about its destruction. That's the nature of sin. Sin doesn't just look for bad things to latch on to. Sin will find something that is good and just and holy, and it will latch on to that thing until it brings about its desired, desired destruction. Paul illustrates this using the specific command of coveting. Paul says, you shall not covet. Or we just say, oh, that's, that's bad. I can't believe that God said you should not covet. No, Paul is saying that that is good. That is just. That is holy. But the problem is that sometimes when God says do not covet, when God gives instructions, sin latches onto that and it brings us to be disobedient. Haven't you seen that pattern? God gives a commandment in Eden, doesn't he? Do not eat from that tree. And what's the action they take? They eat from the tree. 
God gives them a commandment on Mount Sinai and he says, here's the laws. And then God goes up, Moses goes up on the mountain and what do the people do? They make a golden calf. God gives command, but sin seizes that command and it produces that which is unholy and unrighteous. So when a commandment comes in, it doesn't send sin scurrying out into the desert. Instead, sin sees an opportunity, a tool, to use that which is good to bring about disobedience in our lives. It kind of reminds me of the story of uh, somebody was talking about when he was 14 years old. His brother gave him a book called Altered States of Consciousness, a book all about psychedelic drugs. He read it, he said he didn't think it was that interesting. He gave it to a friend. The friend, uh, a week later, he said to the friend, hey, can I have the book back? And the friend, um, 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 um. After a week later, he finds out the friend's parents saw the book and they burned the book, so he can't give the book back. But what happens now? He says, if they felt compelled to burn the book, then this was powerful information. I now had to have it. That's what, that's what sin does as it latches on to good. Somebody says, you can't have this, and that triggers something in us to say, well, now I want it even more. Because that's what sin does. According to Paul, the blame lies not with the law, but with sin. Did what is good, he's referring to the law of Moses, did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. Well, then what was it? It was sin. Working death in me. Through what is good. Through the law of Moses. It was sin working death through the law. So law is a part of the triangle of negativity, but law is not to blame. I think Paul might say that our first marriage was a bad marriage, even though we had a good husband. Well, if the law is good, then why are we glad we're no longer under law? Paul's point is about the powerlessness of law in the presence of sin. I mean, imagine somebody saying, my husband was a good man. He just couldn't ever keep a job. Couldn't hold the job down. Wouldn't help around the house. In all of those facts, he remains a good husband. He just simply was powerless to do the things he needed to do in order to be a good husband. And so with that understanding of law, we come to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. It is a passage that Anders Nygren says it is the most discussed and fought over part of the entire letter to the Romans. Or as J.W. McCormick says, it is the most difficult passage in the letter to interpret. But I want to just read a few verses here and see if you can figure out why in any way this would be difficult. So Romans chapter 7, 14 through 17. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very things I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but it is sin that dwells in me. So after reading that, you're thinking, why would this be debated in any way? It seems very clear that Paul is saying, you know, I, I, sometimes I want to do good things, but I don't always do the very things that I want to do. And not only is it clear, it's something that you probably identify with. Have you ever felt that way before that you've been in a situation and why do I keep doing the very things that I don't want to do? 
So why is this debated? It comes down to two key questions. The first question is this. Is Paul here talking about his present life as a Christian? In other words, he's saying, these are things I'm currently experiencing. Or is Paul talking about his former life in Judaism? He's talking about things he had previously experienced. And the second question is, who is the I? Is it Paul, which we would think it sounds most like it would be? Or does Paul use I in a collective or a representative sense? I'm going to give you my conclusion. I think Paul is speaking about Jewish life under the law. I includes Paul, but it's more than just his personal story. He is speaking as a representative of the Jewish experience under the Old Covenant. Now I have this simple rule when it comes to Bible study. If, if, if there is a clear answer that most people would assume that's the answer, and you're going to say it's something else, the onus and the burden is on you to show why isn't what it seems clearly to be saying, why might that not be what it's saying? So that's what I want to make sure that we do, is to show you the reasons why I don't think that's a convincing reading. Now, since this is one of the most debated passages in Scripture, I'm sure we can resolve it in the next seven minutes to your satisfaction, right? Uh, I have a document at home that has a lot more information that lays out these two perspectives. Uh, so email me if you want to see this and dig into it more. But we're going to just touch on a few major points of consideration. Let's start with the question, who is the I that's being mentioned here? Or how do we know when I might mean we? Or I might mean someone in general? Well, if we look back at Romans chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, no, oh, went too far. Let me go back there. But if through my falsehood, God's truthfulness abounds in his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Now, if you're familiar with gospel, it's, in, it, it's essential to recognize Paul cannot be talking about himself when he says my and I. If he is talking about himself, he's saying that Christians are being condemned as sinners. Is that the kind of gospel you want to preach? You want to go around and say, even after you're a Christian, you're condemned as a sinner. No, Paul, as he's using this eye, he's using it as representative of those who are still under law, who have not yet come to Christ. So Paul has done this. He does it in other letters. Um, but for the sake of ease and simplicity, we're going to stay with Romans. Let's look at what Paul says in Romans 7.14. But we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. Notice there's the corporate sense, and then it moves to what seems like a singular but if that's actually what Paul's doing, Paul is saying, you know, we, the church, know this, but there's one person in this room that is under flesh, sold into slavery, under sin. It's who? Paul is saying, it's me, not any of you. So when he says, I am of the flesh, sold under, he's not just talking about himself, but he's talking about the collective experience of those, I believe, who are still under. They act as if they are married still to the law of Moses. So let's come then to the second question. Which is the second question is, is Paul talking about his previous experience under Judaism or is he, talk, uh, is he talking about something he's currently experiencing as a Christian? Note what he says there. He says, I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. It seems logical that we'd say Paul's using present tense language. He must be talking about a present experience. Just realize in scripture over and over again, people will use present tense language to talk about things that have happened in the past. Ever read the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? Those are all written in present tense. Does that mean they're currently happening? No, you can use present tense to talk about things in the past. But if Paul is making the case, I am currently, today, in my Christian life of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin, he has just contradicted everything he said in chapter 6, and he's going to contradict everything he will say in chapter 
8. What does chapter 8 say? But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. Or is Paul just simply saying, hey, the rest of you guys are not, but me, I'm, I'm still in the flesh, but you guys. No, I think what he's saying you is saying Christians are not. Or Romans 6.22 says, but now you have been freed from sin. Does he then turn around in chapter 7 and say, well, I was freed from sin, but no, actually I still am enslaved in sin? The most convincing factor that this is something about Paul's previous life, representative of Judaism, is this recognition of the context. It flows best with Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, and Romans chapter 8. So I just want to talk through a little bit of, of the flow of what this looks like as we read this passage. Paul says the law is spiritual. But the law came to a people of the flesh. A people, the Israelites, who were enslaved to sin. And when it came, it created this paradoxical situation between the will and actions. There was a part of the Jewish nation, there was a part of Paul, that, that when God said, you shall not covet, they said, that's what I want to do. That's how I want to live my life. And, and when, when they desire to do that thing, they are affirming the law is good. People didn't say, you know what, God, that commandment about coveting is kind of the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and I'm just not going to do it. Is that how they received the law? No, they celebrated the reception of law. And they said, everything that the Lord has said, we will do it. They have the desire and the intention to do it. But even with the desire and the intention, they do not end up doing what they wish and what they will to do. They end up coveting, even when the law says they should not. How does that happen? This is not a fully refined, I was having image uh, issues with uh, PowerPoint this morning. Uh, this is my notes, and it was the closest thing I could get you. So if it looks confusing, it's because it's not refined. This is me thinking on paper. But you recognize here that there is an I. Now, to avoid saying I over and over again, I'm going to use the Greek word ego. You've probably heard that word. Ego is every time you see I, that's just going to simplify, simplify it for it. Ego is the part of self that willed to do good. But even when the ego was willing to do something, it did not do what it willed. So is the ego corrupt? That's the question Paul asks. Once again, just like the law, Paul's not going to say law is bad, nor is Paul going to say ego is bad. He's simply going to say ego is powerless in the presence of the persistence of sin. It's not ego, it's sin. What happens is sin takes up residence in the flesh. And so when the ego says do good, the flesh says, influenced by sin, no. And no matter what ego does, it cannot evict sin. And no matter what law does, it cannot evict sin. People under the law are in a helpless situation. And so then Romans chapter 7, verse 22 and 23 says, For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. And some people say, ah, there it is. This has to be a Christian sense because Christians are the ones who delight in the law of God. I would venture to say, with everything Paul has said about law in Romans 7, that it's not the Christians who would say, I delight in the law of God, because that's the old husband that's already died. It is the Jewish people who are delighting in the law of God. They're believing that the law can produce an end result that the law cannot produce. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The law of my mind is the part of me that says, that says I want to do good, I want to do right. But that part is made captive by the law of sin. 
So Romans 7.24 says, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from the body of death? Again, this is Paul, representative of Judaism, saying, Is this just simply what life will always be like? Law can't deliver me from sin. Flesh can't deliver me from sin. Is this just my life? And of course, he answers that question, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And notice again, he goes from thanks be to God uh, to Jesus Christ our Lord. He's using this language representatively of a people. The people who have accepted Christ, who, who have died in the waters of baptism, are freed from that first husband, have entered into the second husband, can now experience a liberation that you could never have experienced under the first husband. And he summarizes here the problem he's been dealing with. So with my mind, I am a slave to sin. I desire to do good, but with my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. Sneak peek of coming attractions. As Paul saying in Romans 8, 2. There is therefore now no condemnation. He comes now to the present tense. Paul saying this is his experience as a Christian. As a Christian, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And it is Romans chapter 8 that Paul will talk about this new marriage. Our marriage to the spirit. And how that liberates us from sin in a way that the old marriage, the marriage to the law, could not. But what are some of the implications? This is not just thinking about random things. What you do with Romans chapter 7, 14 through 25 has an awful lot to say about what you believe our relationship with sin is like today in the here and now. Someone comes up to you, tears, and they said, I did it again. Somebody you've been working with, and they, they, they've, they've felt like they're under the pressure and the dominion of, of sin, and whatever they do, they just can't get out of it. And the one way you read Romans 7, you would say to them, you'd say, well, that's what happened to Paul. That's what's happened to everybody since Paul. I mean, that's just a part of being in this world. You're going to be dominated by sin. Sin's going to rule over you. Sin's going to have dominion in your life, and you may as well just make peace with the fact that's just the way it is. And if you read Romans 7 one way, that's the way you answer that person who comes with tears in their eyes. But there's another possibility. And the possibility is to let them know that they are told, we are told sin no longer has dominion over you. That does not mean we'll never sin. Paul, who believes this, he will in his letters address the fact that people keep sinning. But what we are talking about here is slavery to sin. The lordship of sin. The dominion of sin. Paul says that has been broken. And so if a person is in a cycle where sin is ruling over them, that is not the ideal state in the life of a Christian. That God wants people to experience the freedom and the liberation of sin that rules over them. And if that's the case, then we need to be able to differentiate between our subjective experience, what I feel, and the objective reality of what actually is. Because I think we all, as we read this, we say, man, I've, I've felt that. Do you realize sometimes our subjective experience of things can be a little confusing? You ever seen this? Which line is longer? And the answer is, they're the same. They don't look the same, do they? Looks like one line is longer and looks like the other line is shorter. Back to Daniel Kahneman as he talks about this. He says, to look correctly at it, you must learn to mistrust your impression. 
He says, even once you know the one line is longer, you will always feel like the one line is. Even though you know both lines are the same length, you will always feel like one line is longer. And I think the same is true. You may feel, you may feel like sin has rule and dominion in your life. But I think Paul would say it does not have rule and dominion in your life. And what we need to do is we need to take what we know to be true to become the reality that we experience. I am no longer a slave to sin. Again, we're not talking about Christian perfection here. We're talking about the rule and the domain of sin. We are dead to sin. Sin's rule is in the past. Liberation in life is in the present. I think Romans 7 makes it clear. When it comes to sin, you can't turn to the law of Moses because it's powerless. Where do we turn? I think the place where most of us turn, honestly, is to the flesh. I got this. I can do this. Let me pull up my boots by the straps. Romans chapter 8 is going to tell us if you turn to the flesh as your source of power, you're going to find yourself as helpless as Jews did when they looked to the law to give them power. There is one thing that will sustain life, and that's the new husband, the Spirit of God, that will enable us to do what we could never do without God's Holy Spirit. So be here next week if you want to know what is it like living married to the Spirit of God, living a life liberated from sin. Paul will tell us about that in Romans chapter 8. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we go from here, we know we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you have any kind of a need, I invite you as we stand this next song to come and find either myself or one of the elders in the back. Let's stand and sing together.